0: very much for asking me a question. How much should you care about the living when you're writing about the dead? The dead won't be around to tell you what they think. If you're nasty, they can't complain. And if you're nice, they can't commend you. But if they've died recently, they'll be the living who knew them and who'll have strong feelings about what you've written. And some of those same living people will probably be in your book. And even if they play only a minor role, there's the challenge of portraying them honestly, which, if they're sensitive to how they come across, and who wouldn't be, they'll have strong feelings about too. It's a minefield. Say I describe one person as chubby, another as volatile. How will they feel? I've avoided worse words. I haven't said fat or bad-tempered. Even so, in the eyes of many people, even to be written about at all is an act of aggression and malice. I've been thinking a lot about this because I've now written three memoirs. First one about my dad, 30 years ago, then a little later, one about my mum, which seems pretty weird, I know, a book about each parent, even if last year's winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Annie, I has done exactly the same thing. And now to compound the weirdness, I published Two Sisters, a book which is largely about my sister, Jill, who died three and a half years ago. was very close to me in age and could indeed, because of her alcohol addiction, be two very different people, two sisters rolled into one. To a lesser extent, the book is about my half-sister, Josie, who often spent time at our house and came on holidays with us, along with her mum, Beatty, and who my father doted on to a suspicious degree, but who was officially the child that Beatty had had with her husband, Sam, and who I didn't know for sure was my half-sister till I was 50. Both my sisters died self-destructively before their time, one in her 40s, the other in her 60s, and the book is in part a search to understand why that was, which means going to some dark places. I say Josie, but that's not her real name. In the book about my dad, in which I speculated whether she could be my half-sister, I changed her name and the name of her mum and the dad who brought her up and any other identifying details would change changed too. But 10 years after the book came out, she phoned me up one day, having seen through the disguise and said she'd always thought my dad was her dad and could we please do a DNA test, which we did. In the new book I've kept as Josie, not just for consistency, but to save her husband and children from any exposure. It's a common ploy in memoirs. You change names, body size, hair colour, age, locations, and so on, all out of discretion. It's not cowardice. It's a respect for privacy. But it doesn't always work. Josie saw through it, and it didn't work with Pat, our housekeeper, who, when she was 18 and I was 14, kept me company in ways not intended by mum and dad. In the memoir of Dad, I changed the name to Sandra to spare her blushes. I mean, would she want to be part of a sex scene? Instead of which, she complained. Why the pseudonym? Why couldn't she have been her? In the new book, she's Pat. I couldn't change my sister's name. Jill was Jill, part of the family. Nothing would have been gained by rechristening her. The same for her children, Louise and Liam and for her ex-husband, Wynne, because I'd named them in the previous two memoirs. If my feelings towards them were hostile or vindictive, using their real names, would have been awkward. But Louise and Liam were great kids, great grown-up kids, and though Wynne became Jill's ex, he continued to care for her and rescue her from many a scrape. For instance, when they divorced and he was paid out for his half share of the house that she continued to live in, he used the money to buy a campervan, and he parked it in the drive outside her house. She was losing her sight by then, so to make things easy for her, if ever she needed help from him, he tied a blue rope from the front door of her house to the handle of his campervan, so she could feel her way along and find her way. A detail like that is why I like life writing and why memoir can be more fabulous than fiction. If I put it in a novel, no one would have believed it. And if I described in a novel how my sister and I, aged eight and nine, were taken to the local hospital to see the newborn Josie, who was proudly held up to us and who my mum, as a doctor, had delivered, a wife delivering the child of her husband's mistress. That too would have seemed a wild invention, as would the fact that my mother and Beattie were great friends and remained so and were all the closer after Dad's death. Anyway, Louise and Liam, they were the people I most worried would be upset by a book that included distressing memories of their mum. So I sent them a draft, and to my relief, after reading it all themselves and reading out any passages in which he appeared to win, They okayed it. Yeah, they they added a few stories and changed a few details. And as children, rather than a brother, they'd have written a different book. But they accepted what I'd written. It's all stuff that happened, they said. It's the truth. I'd done the same with mum, shown her the draft of the book about dad. Two things were worrying me, that she'd find the story of his cancer and the sometimes grisly physical details of his last weeks, too upsetting. But she didn't. She was a doctor. She took them in a stride. And my speculation about Dad's affair with Josie's mum, BT, how would she find that? Well, upsetting, I'm sure, but she said, well, if that's how I remembered it, fine. And if friends asked her about it, she'd tell them it was my saga. My fantasy. She was indulging in only son, I'm sure, but it meant I didn't need to put the book away in a drawer, as I'd vowed I would if she objected to it. She did suggest a few changes, the most surprising of them that I leave out a passing mention of the fact that she was a Catholic, which I knew, but which she claimed few of her patients and not all of her friends did know. Sure, I said no big deal, of course I'll admit it. But when she died five years later and I came into the possession of the letters she'd exchanged with Dad, long before he was my dad, during their courtship, I began to understand why Catholicism was such an issue for her and why her Irishness was too, and why she'd changed her Christian name and hidden the fact of being the 19th of 20 children. And all that became part of the book I wrote about her. Death, as I see it, is permission. Permission, to be honest. But sometimes you need the permission of the living. i not go as far as Sheila Hetty, who says that she consults everyone close to her. And if she can't make changes that they're satisfied with, she considers her, that to be her failure as an artist. But I do get where she's coming from. The ethics of memoir or life writing are complex and much more of an issue today than they were 30 years ago. On the one hand, there's the right of the writer to freedom of expression. And on the other, the right of the written about to have their privacy protected. There's no simple solution. If you're tough or what someone would call brutal or pitiless, just say what you like and let everyone go hang. Unless you're being libelous, it won't or it shouldn't be an issue for your publisher. And if you're settling scores with people you hate, abusive parents, say, or cheating ex-lovers, maybe you'll feel a surge of entitlement. It's not the same for me because I don't feel I have scores to settle. I had a happy childhood. The people I write about were family, and whatever their faults, I still feel close to them. All the same, I know readers will find some of the details about my sister Jill discomforting. I don't think I'm robbing her of her dignity, because when she was drunk, she had no dignity, and she caused a lot of suffering to the people around her, as alcoholics always do. Still, I might have omitted those details if I hadn't felt they were essential to the story. And I think I was also on a mission to de-glamorise heavy drinking, which many novelists and poets have romanticised. It's not that I don't drink myself, I do more than I should, but what I've learned from my sister is the extent of the damage that alcoholism can do. Many memoirist or writer of autofiction has landed in trouble for their candor, especially when the subject is family. Think of Karl Ove Knausgaard, Rachel Cusk, Julie Myerson, for example. There's an idea that candor is hostile; that it defames. But it can also be celebratory. Be brave, I urge students I work with her terrified by what their ex will think or their siblings or their grouchy uncle. Don't let them peer over your shoulder when you're writing. When you're immersed in a draft, it's important to work freely without anxiety or distraction. You can worry about other people later. In mid-flow, you need the illusion of privacy. It's your version of events. Yeah, when you've got a final draft and you might go public with it, then you can show what you've written to others. If they object, it's up to you whether to go ahead. You can always tell them to clear off and tell it their way. And maybe the worst deserve what's coming to them in any case. As the writer Anne Lamott once put it, if people wanted you to write more warmly about them, they should have behaved better. My two sisters book includes passages where I guiltily reflect how I might have behaved better towards them, given them more love and attention. I don't pretend to have been a great sibling, but when I write nonfiction, the contract is that I tell the truth about others and about myself. And in the end, the truth caps everything. At least I think it does, doesn't it? You wouldn't want a memoir to be untruthful, would you? Thank you very much.